Good morning once again, and welcome to those that are listening on the radio and watching on Facebook. We are blessed that you chose to worship with us this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. About a month ago, Stan and Tori, there Stan, um, as well as Pastor Joel a few weeks later, in a sermon referred to the truth, and Stan and Tori were asking for the truth to prevail and be revealed. They sparked a question for me. What is truth? Um, I have a Ph.D. in animal science and am trained in the scientific process. When a scientist has a question, they develop a hypothesis and then design a research test or method to evaluate the hypothesis. It takes many positive tests of a hypothesis before we believe, for example, a cause and effect to be true or factual. However, the outcome of a test is dependent on the condition under which it is conducted. If you do a test when temperatures are zero degrees or and then repeat it when the temperatures are 90 degrees, the results may differ. With the environment or biology, outcomes are always dependent on the conditions under which something like a test occurs. Facts and truths of earthly things come with a clause that they may not be applicable to your situation. We can have a false sense of truth from our own tests that we do in our own lives and things that we see happen one time, we think they may be true all the time. There is another type of false truth. Unfortunately, there are people in this world that don't care about the accuracy of something as they only want their viewpoint or agenda to be heard and others to like and follow their belief system. There is a debate in society if truth is absolute or if it is individual for each person. Can each person have their own version of truth? The idea that whatever you want or what I want is okay. There's also a version of that. Does truth change over time? The only real truth is what comes from God himself. It doesn't come from a clause of only applicable in certain situations or with the caution of side effects or interaction with other things may not work for everyone or for you. Consider these verses. John 1:17. Grace and truth come from Jesus. There's a, another well-known verse familiar to all of us where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These two verses state that all truth, meaning the only real truth, comes from him. Truth comes coming from science or people is not real unless it originates from him. And the last verse for you to consider is 7, Acts 17, 11. The people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. We should always be ready to test what we hear and read against the word of God to be certain there is no conflict. And now, will you rise for the call to worship? It is taken from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. 
and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve what purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountain and hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. And instead of the briar, the myrtle will grow. And this will be the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Now let's join the praise team and worship the Lord by singing, Ever Be and Build My Life. Angels and saints. 
Would you join me as we say praises to our Lord this morning? Father God, as we enter your presence this morning, Father, we humble ourselves. Father, everything that we do and everything that we ask for you to do, Father, we pray that it's done in your will, Father. Father, every Sunday we talk about people on our prayers, pray, prayers and concerns list. I just praise, Father, that you would lift up all those people. 
We lift them all up to you, Father. We'll allow you to determine if healing is needed or if they just need to be comforted and given peace. So we lift all those people up to you, Father, not only in this congregation, but in the surrounding areas. And there's so many of them that need you, Father. They really need you in their lives, Father. And we thank you for you providing that for them. And Father God, as we worship this morning, I pray that you would bless all the people that are involved in our worship service this morning, from the sound keepers in the back to the Sharon and the praise team up here and to those that are reading Scripture this morning, doing the children's chat, and to the playing of the organ this morning. We pray that you'd bless all those people, Father. Father, as we celebrate Independence Day this next week, Father, I pray that we are aware of all the freedoms that we have in this country, Father. Freedoms that you have given us. And Father, there are so many individuals and groups that want to steal those freedoms away from us, Father. So many things are being done that most of us aren't even aware of. So, Father, I pray that as we move on, I pray that you make us aware of what is going on around us, Father. And, Father, when we see these things happening to us, Father, the freedoms that are trying to be taken away or diminished in any way, I pray that we would be remain bold. We would remain strong in our faith and bold in our proclamation that we won't accept this. Too many people have paid the ultimate price for those freedoms, Father. And I just, I thank all the men and women of our service, armed forces. I pray that you be with them, Father, as they protect those freedoms. And Father, as I said before, these freedoms do not come cheaply. There are so many people, thousands upon thousands, that have given the ultimate sacrifice for those freedoms and for our country. And Father, I pray that you'd bless those families. Give them comfort and peace, Father. And Father, we talk about the freedoms that the country has provided for us, and we're so thankful for that, Father. But we're also thankful, Father, for one other freedom. You have told us that if we turn our lives over to you, Father, you will give us freedom from sin. And that is so special, Father. We just can't thank you enough for that, Father. And I pray for all those people that are listening today. If they just haven't made that decision yet, I pray that they would turn their lives over to you, Father, and accept that freedom from sin that you give. Father God, we're so thankful that we can come to you this morning. We can talk to you about anything. We can come right before you, right in your presence and talk to you, Father. And we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, 
as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For that is the kingdom and the power and the glory Amen. You may be seated. Now the children's come forward for the children's chapter, Tori. How's it going? You guys having a good summer? Yeah? You guys been outside a lot? You guys have plans for the 4th of July? No? Oh, you guys are asleep this morning, aren't you? I think it's the heat, right? It's making you sleepy. Okay, I see a few more coming. All right, while they're coming, I have a couple questions. How, raise your hand if you're happy all the time. 24-7, you're happy. <laughs> no. <laughs> what things make you happy? What makes you happy? Winning a game. Yes, that makes us happy, right? What makes you happy? Your dog. My dog makes me happy, too. What else? Swimming. Oh, I love swimming, especially on a day like today, right? It would feel really good to swim. All right, how many of you are sad all the time? That's good. What things make you sad, though? When you do get sad, what makes you sad? When you lose a game. <laughs> yep, that can make you sad. What about if you, like, fall off your bike or a friend hurts your feelings? Those things make you sad, too, right? If you don't have anyone to play with at recess. So sometimes we have days where we're happy and things are going really, really well. And there's sometimes that we have days that we're really sad and maybe someone hurt us or maybe we're just, we're just having a bad day. We woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Um, but, you know, we have ups and downs in our lives, right? And some people call like the, the happy moments of life the mountaintop moments, right? You feel like you could do absolutely anything. And then other people say when you're really sad, it feels like you're down in a valley, right? And there are other times that we're just kind of in the middle. And that's okay too. But the Bible tells us about a guy named Job. And he was at first really, really happy. He had a lot of good things going for him in life. He had like 10 children. He was very rich. He believed in God, had a really good relationship with God, and everything from the outside was going really, really well, right? And all of a sudden, God allowed some things to happen. All of his animals were taken. All of his children died. He got really, really sick, and he had sores all over his body. And God allowed those things to happen. So Job went from super, super happy to really, really sad, very, very quickly, right? And he was so sad and so miserable that he also wanted to die. Now, why do you think God would allow that to happen? I don't know. We don't, hmm? To see if he would trust him. Man, did you write this lesson? Were you in my office when I was writing this? <laughs> yeah, so we actually don't know why God allowed all of these things to happen to Job. But we can learn a really important lesson, and it's what Jojo just said, to see if he would trust God, right? Can we trust God when we're happy? Yeah. Can we trust God when we're sad and things aren't going well? 
Yeah, because God is always trustworthy. Even when things are not going well in our lives, and even when we've had a really bad day, we can always go to God. And we can always trust that he will be with us and that he'll never leave us, even when we can't find someone to play with on the playground or a friend turns their backs on us or whatever it is that we face. And, you know, the book of Job teaches us that we can bring all of those things to God, too. Job was very honest with his feelings. When he was having a bad day, he let the Lord know. And you can do that, too, because God can take those things. He can, he, when you tell him, God, I am just having a really bad day. I am really, really sad or really, really mad at this person. God's listening because he's always there, right? And you can trust him with those things and bring that stuff to him all the time. So whether you have a really good week this week or maybe it's a really bad week this week, who knows? Um, God knows and you can trust him with it all, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Job and his example of trust, Lord. God, I pray that you would help us all to trust in you in the good times and the bad times. And Lord, help us to remember that you will never leave us or forsake us. We love you, and we thank you for all that you are and all that you do. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Tori. You guys can head back to your seats. Our offering this morning goes to support the general fund here at First Church. Uh, so if you're willing and able to give this morning, I encourage you to give to support the ministry of First Church. Uh, and I encourage you to give as you feel led to give this morning. Our offertory music is provided this morning by Grace Rediger and Barb Phipps. We're grateful to have you both here this morning. I invite the deacons to come forward and collect our offering.
Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so grateful uh, for the opportunity to give back to you this morning. We know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so we thank you, Lord, that we have this privilege, this opportunity to give back from what you've given us. Lord, we ask that you would bless this offering to further the work of your kingdom in this church and in this community. And we thank you, Lord, uh, and, and ask, Lord, that you'd be glorified in and through it. Lord, even our offerings, even our gifts are an act of worship to you because you are the one true God who deserves all of our worship and praise. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This time I invite Tracy Ford for our scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is taken from Job 9, verses 32 to 35. It's page 507 if you want to follow along in your Bible. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror wouldn't frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray together once again. Father God, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather here and worship you. I know I pray that just about every week, but Lord, let us not take for granted what a privilege and blessing it is to be with your people, to sing your praises, and to hear your word read. So now as we study your word together, may you guide our hearts and minds into what you have to say to us. May you soften hearts and open minds, Lord, to your word and your truth. And may you give me words to speak, words that are honoring and pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last year, as I was planning for our Bible in a year reading plan and working through the different ways to approach that, one of the, one of the ways I considered working through the Bible is a chronological order. Many of you maybe have tried to do that before, where, where it takes the writings of Scripture, and instead of putting them in the order or reading them in the order that we have them in our Bibles, chronological order. Um, and I was looking at one of, those pat, one of those stories and or one of those reading plans, and it's interesting. If any of you ever looked at one of those before, the book of Job actually comes very, very early in a chronological reading of the Bible. Many of the plans take Genesis 1 through 11, and then you jump right into the story of Job. It is one of the oldest stories that we have in our scripture taking place uh, well before what many of the familiar stories of Moses and King David and Solomon. And it's a story that God's people have wrestled with for a long, long time. And it's a story that many of us wrestle with in our own way. Because the story of Job is the story of a person who's suffering the story of a person who's going through the most difficult moments of his life, and he's trying to understand why, wrestling with the biggest question that people have been asking since the beginning of time and continue to wrestle with today, and that is why do good things, or excuse me, why do bad things happen to good people? The story of Job is, is the story of a person who lost everything, and Pastor Tori alluded to that in her children's chat. Job 1 and, one and 2 set up the story for us. Job is described as wealthy, blameless, upright, a person who, who feared God and shunned evil. And so one day we get, a, we get a peek behind the curtain. The Lord in his heavenly court 
has this conversation with Satan, the enemy of God's people. Satan accuses Job of only fearing God because of the way that God has blessed him. See, Satan accuses Job of only worshiping God because of all the good things God has done for him and provided for him in his life. And if we're honest with ourselves, that may be an easy trap for all of us to fall into, right? Do we worship God and trust him for who he is and what he, or do we only worship him and care about him for the things that he blesses us with? See, that's at the very heart of Satan's accusation, that Job only cares about God because of the things that God has done for him. And so Satan asks for permission to remove God's blessing from Job's life. He wants to prove that the only reason Job is righteous, the only reason he fears God, is because of the Lord's blessings. Take those away. Satan is convinced that Job will curse God. And of course, all this is happening unbeknownst to Job. It's all happening behind the scenes. And so Job loses almost everything in a single day, his wealth, his property, his children. Yet he refuses to curse God. Instead, he praises him with famous words from chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Right? Naked I came into this world, and naked I will depart. Praise be the name of the Lord. So that's not enough, though. Satan once again goes before the Lord and asks for permission to test Job. He wants to prove once and for all that Job will curse God. And so he asks for permission to take away his health. And God gives him that permission with one restraint, that he cannot take Job's life. And so Job's health fails him. He's covered with painful sores all over his body, and he is absolutely miserable. In fact, his wife even encourages him to curse God and die, the very thing that Satan is attempting, is tempting Job to do. Yet Job still refuses. He knows that he must accept both good and bad from the Lord. And so in his misery, Job's three friends come and visit him. They sit in silence with him for seven days, and then they each speak up. Three friends, three speeches, and Job responds to each one of them. And this makes up the core of the book of Job. Unfortunately, these friends are miserable comforters. That's what Job calls them in chapter 16, verse 2. They try to explain Job's suffering with easy answers that don't stand up to the weight and lived experiences of sufferers like Job. They were trying to be Monday morning quarterbacks. You guys know what I mean by that? Monday morning quarterback is someone who critiques the play of a, of a football team on Monday morning, right? They second guess the decisions the coach made or the play of the quarterback. They say this is what they would have done if they were out there. The problem with Monday morning quarterbacks is that they're not out on the field. They're sitting comfortably on their couch watching the game on the TV. They have no experience of what it's like to actually be out there making those decisions in split-second moments. That's exactly what Job's friends are doing here. They're telling Job all what he did wrong while having no idea what it's like to actually experience what Job is going through. One final friend does speak up. His name is Elihu. He speaks out both, he calls out both Job and his other friends for their misunderstanding of their situation. One of the main points that he brings up is that God may be using Job's suffering as a way to speak to his people. He communicates, the Lord communicates, communicates in a variety of ways, through visions, through dreams, through whispers. He may also be using suffering, as, as the friend puts it, to woo Job back to himself. 
And in the end, in chapters 38 through 41, the Lord does respond to Job. He doesn't offer answers to Job's questions or address his accusations. He simply appeals to his own power, his sovereignty, and his justice. God created and sustains all things, and his means and motives are beyond our ability to comprehend. And so in the end, Job does respond to the Lord. He recognizes God's sovereignty and his power. He acknowledges that God's ways are unknowable to us, and in one sense, they are above our pay grade. And he takes comfort in the fact that the Lord made himself known to Job. You see, in, in Job 42.3, he says, my eyes have seen you. Right? He acknowledges that, that the difference that is made is not the easy answers his friends provided, but the pre- God's presence in the midst of our suffering. God's presence is enough. It is better than any easy answers that we try to make up for ourselves. So that's the story of Job in a nutshell. And, and what I want to do today is kind of walk through what this means for us. As I said, people have been, have been wrestling with this question of why do bad things happen to good people for the entire, entirety of human history? And it's a question that many of you have often asked yourselves in the hard moments of your life. And so let's take a look together at what Job has to offer for us. And the first thing that I want to encourage you to do in your difficulties, in your suffering, in your pain, is don't accept easy answers to life's most difficult, complex questions. Right? Job's friends were offering easy, simplistic, reductionist answers that did not stand the test of lived experience. Their point was, was a simple cause and effect theology. Throughout their speeches, they reiterated over and over again that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. So if Job was suffering, then he must have done something to deserve it. If all the, all the hardship that Job is experiencing must have been his fault for his behavior. And so he needed to acknowledge the, th- the wrong that he'd done, acknowledge his evil and wicked ways, and then perhaps the Lord would restore him and bless him. You see the cause and effect theology at work there? They believe that only, they're, they're telling Job that all of the bad that he'd experienced in his life had, was his fault. That he had done something to deserve it. And so the way to fix his problem was simply to be a better person. To turn from his wicked ways and honor the Lord and the Lord would bless him. That sort of cause and effect theology is really at the core of our kind of modern day prosperity gospel theology, right? Prosperity gospel teaches you that God wants to bless you and that God blesses you through material means like health and wealth. And that if you honor God, he will, then he will take away that blessing. It's a very cause and effect way of looking at the world, way too simple for the way the world actually works. See, the reality is that we love easy answers, don't we? We want to be able to explain the reason behind everything. We want to be able to, to, to pick apart, right, our, our motives and our understanding and how the world works. Reality is that it's a, it's a control mechanism, right? When we can explain everything, when we have all the answers, that does not require any faith. Faith, by its very definition, requires trust in what is unknown and unseen. 
That's how the author of Hebrews describes faith in Hebrews, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is, is trust in what is not seen. So I was having a conversation with Pastor Tori earlier this week about this sermon. She reminded, she, she shared a thought with me that, that has stuck with me all week. She said, perhaps it's part of God's grace and his mercy that God doesn't give us all the answers that we desire, that God doesn't give us his motivations. In the movie, The Wizard of Oz, right, when Dorothy and her friends finally make it to the palace and finally go into uh, see the wizard, they discover that there's a man behind the curtain, just an ordinary person pulling levers and manipulating everything. Once they see behind the curtain, the whole illusion is destroyed. Now, I'm not saying that God is a, an illusion pulling levers behind a screen, but, but once we get a peek behind the curtain, right, once we see and understand God's motive, it may create in us a disillusionment. It may cause us not to trust him because we judge God by our standards, by our perspective, and not his. Could we really trust God if we knew all of his reasons and motives? You see, we can't possibly understand his motives and his thoughts. They're beyond ours. That's what our call to worship reminded us of in Isaiah 55, that his thoughts are greater than I thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Now, I do believe that God is good and sovereign over all things and that he does have a perfectly good reason for allowing certain things to happen. I just think that we would have an inability to understand what that is because his ways are higher than our ways. We view God from our limited vantage point. All too often we judge God based on our own limited perspective. We judge him on our own terms as Job's friend Elihu says in chapter 34, verse 33, that we look at God through our own eyes on our own terms and so we judge him by our human standards. But God's wisdom is greater than ours. And God's wisdom... Let me put it this way. I do think, as I said before, that God has a good reason. Now, we may not understand it. We may not see it. But here's the thing, too. If we were given the reason, that still wouldn't take away the pain and the suffering that we're going through. Just knowing why things happen the way they do isn't going to take away the pain and the suffering that we're experiencing. Just because we have the answers doesn't mean that that pain and that suffering is just going to disappear and vanish. God's ways are higher than ours. So that requires a level of trust, doesn't it? It requires a level of faith to trust that God is good even when it's hard to see, that God is in control when everything seems to be falling apart. As I mentioned earlier, Job had no idea what was happening behind the scenes. He didn't know that there was this conversation between the Lord and Satan happening that led to his hurt and the disaster that he experienced. Right at the heart of the book of Job, in Job 28, there's this interlude. The, the conversation, the discourses between Job and his friends end, and there's this chapter about wisdom. And it talks about natural resources that can be found and harvested, that human beings know how to, how to mine for gold and, and how to harvest natural resources from the earth. Yet wisdom cannot be discovered in the same way. 
Wisdom instead belongs to the Lord. It is his. And that we as human beings can obtain wisdom by learning to fear the Lord and shun evil, which is interestingly enough the very same description given of Job in the first chapter of this book. Suffering is a very real and common human experience. That's why, that's why the book of Job is so powerful because it's something so many of us can relate to. Yes, we all suffer, but to, and maybe to a different degree in different ways. Some suffering is physical, other suffering is emotional, mental, or spiritual. Some suffering is public, while other suffering is private. But everyone experiences it to one degree or another. And as human beings, we can't wonder, we can't help but wonder why, or what maybe, maybe a better question is, uh, what causes suffering in our world? Job's friends, the theology that they provide is that all suffering can be explained through personal sin and decisions. That's the simplistic answer. And while that can be true in many, in some circumstances, it is not always the case. Job is suffering, they say, so he must have done something evil to deserve it. Therefore, he should repent of his wrongdoing and God will restore him. See, when we face suffering, easy answers and meaningless platitudes don't help us very much. What other answers have you heard in your own experience or maybe that you've offered to someone going through difficult times? My personal favorite, the one that I've heard probably more often than others, is that God will never give you more than you can handle. Yeah, try telling that one to Job, right? He'll be the first to admit that God allowed him to experience significantly more than he could handle. You see, God never promises that he'll never give us more than he can handle. Life often is, more, is overwhelming, and some of you can attest to that fact from personal experience. God gives people more than they can handle so that they can learn to depend on him instead of themselves. And that's what the Apostle Paul was getting at in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is the famous passage about the thorn in his flesh. And after praying to the Lord to remove the thorn, this is the answer he gets. The Lord tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God does give us more than we can handle. Life is overwhelming, but he wants us to trust him, to depend on him. The words that Job's friends offer are no comfort to him. He refutes their simplistic theology and maintains that he's innocent, and he even accuses God of unfairly punishing him. Job even curses the day he was born and wishes that he were dead. If you think about it, those are classic signs of depression, aren't they? Whether for brief moments or long seasons, many people struggle with depression. And the Bible does not shy away from the reality of, of those sorts of things. Depression, anxiety can be very real, very overwhelming experiences for people. Job and many of the Psalms attest to how God's people struggle through it. Job wishes he could plead his case directly to God, but to him, God seems distant. In Job 23, he, he struggles, but he feels that God is nowhere to be found. He knows that he cannot stand before God, that the Lord is too powerful and he is sovereign. What can a mere mortal do or say to him? Sometimes, yes, struggling, suffering is a result of personal sin and decisions, but that is not the only explanation. The broken world that we live in, 
Sometimes we suffer as an indirect result of people's sin or the effect that sin has in the world. Nature, institutions, societies, and yes, even our own bodies don't function the way that they were intended, that God intended them to function. And so we experience suffering as a result of that. Cancer, illness, natural disasters, confusion, all can lead to suffering because our world is broken because of sin. And suffering also can be the result of unseen spiritual forces. Job attests to that very fact in chapters 1 and 2. Satan, the very enemy of God and his people, actively opposes human flourishing and God's purposes in the world. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy wants nothing more than to turn you away from the Lord, and he will use suffering to prove his point. See, the world we live in isn't a closed system. It's not a simplistic cause and effect. There's more going on than we can observe with our five senses. When I was in college and still pursuing a degree in science, I was a lab assistant in our physics program. And one of my responsibilities was to set up the labs for the experiments that week. And an experiment, as as Brian so helpfully alluded to earlier as well, you're trying to reduce the amount of outside influence in the experiment so that your results and your answers can be as clear as possible. So my job is to try to create as closed of a system as possible when I was setting up these experiments. And therefore, the results would be more accurate and reliable. Unfortunately, the world we live in is not a closed system. It's not just what we see with our senses, but there is a spiritual reality that is important to acknowledge. Sometimes, but not all the time, mind you, but sometimes suffering is the result of those unseen spiritual forces at work. But I want to give you this encouragement as well. Don't dwell on that too much. C.S. Lewis once said that the two common problems that people make when dealing with the enemy, when dealing with Satan and his forces, is that one, we either ignore them and pretend that they don't exist to our own detriment, or two, we give them too much attention and therefore too much power and influence in our lives. And so therefore we need a good and healthy and biblical approach when we talk about these things. Yes, Satan is real. Yes, he wants to destroy God's people but he is fighting a losing battle. Jesus already defeated him at the cross. So those are some of the causes of suffering that we can attest to from Scripture and our own experience. But what does this all mean for us? Right? The question at the heart of the book of Job is why do bad things happen to good people? And though Job does not provide easy answers, it does give us hope. And one of the one of the messages of Job is that God meets us in our suffering. You see, suffering has a curious effect on people, doesn't it? It has a curious effect on us. People respond differently to suffering. There's no one-size-fits-all response. But one thing that is common in many cases is that suffering causes a person to feel alone, to feel isolated, that God is distant or absent in the midst of suffering. And as I alluded to earlier, that's the experience Job had in 23, he feels like God is far off and is, and is unable to hear his prayers. Laments like Psalm 13 ask questions like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Right? It's a common experience among God's people. But notice how, how the Lord answers Job at the end of this book. He doesn't just list easy answers. He doesn't say, because I said so. He shows up in a whirlwind, in a storm. He 
arrives on the scene. God gives us something better than easy answers and meaningless platitudes. He gives us himself. Job responds to the Lord's presence. My eyes have seen. Job 42.3. It's the Lord's presence that makes the difference for him. The Lord doesn't answer Job's questions directly or address his accusations. Instead, he appeals to his own power, his sovereignty, and his justice. Everything, even the most fearsome aspects of creation, are under God's control. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we trust him? Do we believe that the Lord is good? Do we believe that he is sovereign over all things and that he has a plan and purpose for our lives? Even if we can't see it, even if we can't understand it, do we believe that it's true? The Lord always was and always is and always will be a God who is aware of and responds to his people's suffering. I love the passage from the book of Exodus. At the end of chapter 2, this is right before the Lord calls out to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God hears our prayers. God hears our suffering. He is aware of what we're going through, and he hears and responds to his people. There's an invitation there to cry out to him. Let your suffering drive you to God, not away from him. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign, and he can certainly handle our complaints, our doubts, and our fears. He meets us there. He hears us, and he responds. And the Lord knows us by name. Something struck me, even just this morning as I was reviewing my notes, that the Lord knew Job by name. If you go back to Job 1 and 2, it's the Lord who draws attention to Job. He says, have you considered my servant Job, who is blameless and righteous? The Lord knows Job. He knows us. He's not far off. He's not aloof. He knows us better than we even know ourselves. He knows the number of hairs on our head and the number of days ordained for our lives. He knows us, and he loves us. See, our Christian faith offers us an alternative to the escapism and the stoicism that's popular in our world today. Right On the one hand, we have people that just try to avoid suffering at all costs. They try to escape any sort of obstacles that are in their way. On the other hand, we have people that are more like stoics. They just say, grin and bear it, play the hand you're dealt, deal with it. But our Christian faith offers us something different. That God is able to use our suffering for his glory and for our good. The problem is that we need to refine what good is in our minds. Romans 8, 20, Romans 8 28 through 29 reminds us that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now it doesn't say that everything that happens to us is good but that God can use all things, even the evil, even the suffering, for good. And the good that God wants to produce in us is in, described in verse 29, to make us more like Jesus, to make us more like his son, to help us. And our suffering will accomplish that. God is glorified in our suffering. The works in John 9 
we're, we're reminded of that. Jesus encounters a man who's born blind and the disciples falling into that same simplistic theology that Job's friends did wondered whose fault it was that he was blind. But Jesus says he was not, it's not the result of anybody's sin, but that God's works may be displayed in him. God is glorified in the faithful suffering of his people. The second thing is that we need to remind ourselves that God can use suffering to bring us to maturity. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, but perseverance finishes its work in you so that you may be mature. Infant our sufferings just doesn't make sense unless we see the bigger picture and trust that God is able to work through it. C.S. Lewis, again, in his book, Problem of Pain, says that pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his microphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses our suffering to draw us to himself. And he also uses our suffering so that we can help others. Your biggest struggle may become your most powerful ministry and testimony. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says that, that we comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So know that whatever you're struggling with, whatever problem you're facing, that God wants to use that not only for your good, but so that you can help others who are facing similar situations. God will use it for his glory and for your good if you let him. That brings us then back to the scripture passage we started with, Job 9, 32 through 35. Job states two desires here in this passage. He asks for a mediator to plead his case before God and to bring them together and for the rod of God's discipline to be removed from him. I believe the reason I picked this passage, that passage to be read is because I believe that points us to the central truth that God wants us to understand here that God is present with us in our pain, that we do need a mediator, and that the story of Job ultimately points us to Jesus. See, Job recognized God's greatness. He knows that he can't stand before him, that he is creator and that we are creature, that he is holy and that we are sinful. And Scripture testifies over and over again that all have sinned and are unable to stand before God. Therefore, we do need a mediator, one who can relate to both sides, one who is fully God and perfect and righteous in all that he does, and one that is fully human and can relate to our needs. And Scripture says that Jesus is the one, the only one who fits that bill. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says he is the one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. He's the mediator we need. He bridges the gap between creature and creator, between righteous and in, between a righteous and holy God and a sinful person. He brings them together through his body and his blood. And Job's other desire is for the rod of discipline to be removed from him. And that rod is removed because of Jesus. Our mediator took it upon himself. He not only meets us in our suffering, but he bears our suffering on the cross. He puts an end to it and says, it is finished. Because he died and rose again, we know that our suffering has an expiration date. We know that our pain, yes, even our own death, ends with an empty tomb. So I want to return to the original question. Why do bad things happen to good people? 
Job, in all of Scripture, doesn't provide an easy answer. That's why this is such a powerful, relatable story. People have wrestled with this question for thousands of years, and they'll continue to wrestle with it until Jesus comes back. What we really need when we are hurting is to know that we are not alone, to have someone sit with us in our grief and pain. That's what Job's friends did for seven days. Then they ruined everything by opening their mouths. And that's what the Lord does for Job. He meets him there. Job sees him with his very eyes, and Job knows that his Redeemer lives. That's why God does, that's what God does for us through Christ and his Holy Spirit. Jesus becomes like us. He experienced the full gambit of human emotions and temptations, but he did not sin. He took it all upon himself on the cross. And now he gives us his Holy Spirit to be with us every moment of every day, to never leave nor forsake us. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate fulfillment of passages like Psalm 23, 4. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? It goes on that, that even though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we will fear no evil for the Lord is with us. As Pastor Tim Keller says, we're not given a direct answer to that ultimate question. But whatever the answer is, it cannot be because God doesn't love us. He meets us in our suffering. He redeems our suffering because Jesus bore that suffering upon the cross so that we may experience his restoration, his love, and his peace. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hope that you give us. You don't give us easy answers to life's most difficult questions, but you do give us something better. You give us yourself. You give us your presence and your promises. And you give us your son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for us who bore our suffering on the cross so that we know our suffering is only temporary, so that we know our suffering has an expiration date. Help us in the midst of our suffering to hold on to that hope and the hope that comes only from you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we close our service of worship today, I invite you to stand and join us as we sing number 26 from our hymnals, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
with one more word of hope from the book of Job. At the end of Job's story, his fortunes are restored. God allows him to have more children. He accumulates more wealth. And Job's story does have a happy, does have a happy ending. And that points to the hope that we have in Christ, that because of his death and his resurrection, we know that our stories have a happy ending too. We know that God will restore all things through Christ. And that's what Job's story points to. We may not experience it in this life. We may not be given the answers to why we're suffering. And we may not see the other side of that in this life. But we do have hope through Christ, through the empty tomb, through his resurrection, that God will restore all things, even if it is in his kingdom when he returns. And so whatever you're going through, whatever trouble you're facing, know that our Redeemer does live, that we will see his face on this earth, and that he will restore all things in his kingdom and in his timing and in his own way. Hold on to that hope, no matter what you're facing this day. And so now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. You may go in peace.